As we continue our study of Matthew's gospel, our scripture for today comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 to 9, and then verses 18 to 52. That same day Jesus went out of the house and he sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and he sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. And then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow a seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell on the path, and the birds came, and they ate it up. And some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil, and it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. And other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop. A hundred, sixty, thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This one produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted, it formed heads and the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and they said, Sir, did you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at that time I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in the field. And though it's the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. And Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable. So it was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. And then he left the crowd and he went into the house and the disciples came to him and they said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are the angels. And the weeds are pulled up and burned in fire. And so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. 
The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then he went with joy, and he sold all that he had, and he bought that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and he sold everything, and he bought it. And once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into a lake and caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up onto the shore. And they sat down and then they collected the good fish in baskets, but they threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood these things? Jesus said. Yes, they replied. And he said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who's come and become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like an owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus tells eight parables to paint one picture. And I chose to read all of them so that we could just sit back and think about this one picture of his kingdom. He explained thoroughly the parable of the sower, so I'm not going to add to the words of Jesus there. He explained what that means. He explained the parable of the wheat and the tares. And we can see those things uh, as Jesus explains them. But I want us to just think about this picture that he's painting. And I want us to think about a few things that are revealed here. The first thing is that the king is either received or rejected. Secondly, that his kingdom is massive and mixed. And then lastly, that his kingdom is invaluable. It's like a treasure. So first, let's consider that in all of these parables, there's this recurring theme of this king who's being either received or rejected. Right? When, he's, when he's received, the gospel satisfies. And when he's rejected, there's a separation. A separation and a satisfaction. Those who receive are satisfied. They're like the hundredfold return. They're, they're, they've got this treasure, this joy, this pearl that's worth any price. This picture of just the receiving of the king. And then there's this rejection of the king that, that results in this separation. The good soil from the bad soil, the weeds from the wheat, the good fish from the bad. We see this recurring sort of picture. But before we talk about this further, I want us to zoom out because when the scriptures speak about Judgment, Jesus speaks about hell. That is so offensive to the modern mind that likely many of you have just fixated and are distracted at that point, particularly if you're visiting us this morning and you're exploring Christian faith. So I want to give us context for Jesus speaking about this judgment in this way. When Jesus is teaching here in these parables about judgment and separation and hell, these are not abstract concepts that he's pulling from nowhere, devoid of proof. This is very pointed teaching that he gives after he has done many region-shaking signs of unmistakable power. Before we get to this point where he's speaking this way about judgment and separation in hell, he has healed people of leprosy. He has reached out and touched the social rejects in kindness and care and healed their leprosy. He has healed a woman dying of a fever. He has cast out demons so publicly 
in communities where people were tormented by the possessed. And he has brought them into their right minds and he has healed them. He has reached out to the outcasts in ways that nobody else ever would. He has healed people in the streets. He was exhausted. And in his exhaustion, people were bringing their sick by the droves. And in his tiredness, he was extending himself in radical care, healing all the sick. He was healing the blind. He was healing the demon-possessed. He was speaking publicly in the synagogue when some friends brought their one buddy who was paralyzed and they tore the roof open and they lowered him down in the middle of the church service and Jesus healed him very publicly. Set the communities upside down with these wondrous signs of miraculous, unmistakable power. He's healing the mute. He heals a withered hand on the Sabbath day. A sign that the purpose of the Sabbath, the purpose of the rest, the purpose for which he has come, would be restore what is withered, namely the souls of humanity. And then he healed a multitude on the Sabbath. The teaser trailer of the restoration of all things, the material world and the creation that God loves. And on this glorious backdrop, of unmistakable power, love, and scandalous care. He's not merely abstractly trying to freak people out talking about the judgment of God. He has already demonstrated by the very power of God that he is God, the scandalous saving grace and forgiveness of God. And now comes this call to receive him. So that we can experience renewal. That by his great grace, not come under the judgment of God. Not come under the separation of God. But be welcomed into the glorious grace and the family of God. As moderns, we are thousands of years away from these signs. We are thousands of years and culture away from the world in which Jesus is talking about this judgment. But from the very start of his public ministry comes this Speaking of the grace and the kingdom, he was calling it the gospel, the good news of God. And so it's against this backdrop of the good news that he begins to speak about this judgment, this very bad news. And we get stuck on the phrase, the fire, the gnashing of teeth. And we think to ourselves as moderns, oh, that's gross. I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know if I like that. Why don't we just construct a God who has no no judgment? Let's just sit in the reality of the original audience. Again, it's, 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 it's impossible, but let's just, try a mod- let's just try a modern day parable. We're walking down King Street when there's a scurry in the street and there are people running and screaming everywhere because Grand River Hospital is empty. Because somebody went in there and healed everyone and emptied the place. And there's gowns strewn across King Street and families are freaking out. They're excited, but they're also terrified Because everybody who was in the ICU unit is now dancing and singing and laughing in the street in their home. We can't conceive of how the city would be turned upside down if Grand River Hospital was empty tomorrow. You can't imagine what would happen in your news feeds. You can't imagine what it would be like to go to work and have discussions about what was going on in the city. This is what was happening. 
And so when Jesus comes and he speaks about hell and judgment, he's not doing this. He's, he's not warning of this reality from a place of dark pleasure. He's doing it from intentional mission and his call to renewal. This is a bold call to follow him, to receive the king. All of this imagery of hell, it teaches us a few things. This is not about a color, coloring book Christianity where in the end the good people are in the clouds and the bad people are in fire. Jesus uses the imagery of fire to speak of the disintegration of the human soul for all eternity. Have you ever met a person who's curved inward and their life is tormented because they're fixated on themselves? They're so curved in, maybe with anger, maybe with anxiety, maybe with bitterness. Maybe because of something that had happened to them. Maybe because of something that they did. But they would describe their life as hell. Have you ever felt that way? Jesus uses this imagery of fire because fire disintegrates. And so even though we can't comprehensively understand what it is that what hell is uh, or, or what that means, here's what we know. The whole purpose for which Christ has come is renewal. And therefore, if we do not receive the king and receive his renewal, the renewal of the material of this world, which God created and loved and will restore again, if we're not participants in that renewal, receive the king and his message, then all that is left is the disintegration. That as Christ raises us bodily and and restores this world for us to enjoy it, the alternative is that we're not in that enjoyment. We are not in that joy. We are not in the renewal. The hell is the eternal disintegration of the soul. Even if you are a secular humanist this morning and you believe that after we die, there's nothing. Even if that, that's not the way Jesus speaks about hell, it doesn't, he never talks about it like we pass into a state of non-existence. That's more attractive to the modern mind. Just be like, okay, well, we don't exist anymore. It's mysterious, so I'm not going to try and comprehensively explain it. But, but what we're clearly given in the mission of Jesus and the bodily resurrection of Jesus is that the alternative to the material res- restoration of all things is to not participate in that. And so it's not a dark pleasure that Jesus speaks about hell in this way. It's an, it's, it's an unabashed call to receive the king. And as I've already said, he's not doing this from no place. He's doing this on the backdrop of scandalous love, care, healing, miracles, signs. He has moved heaven and earth to reveal who he is. And he's saying, come and receive. And so even though I've said all that and I go to great lengths to explain the amazing love of God and the reality of the judgment of God, still the modern mind says, this is nauseating. I don't like the idea of divine judgment in the world. But yet in a great stroke of irony, we are consumed with judgment. Our culture is, a well, the the world, not just our culture, the world. We are obsessed with judgment. We have to be. Because if you decide there is no God, then all that is left is your perception of reality of what is good and bad. And the only way to live a life of, of joy is to exact judgment on those who ideologically are not aligned with what you believe is going to result in city flourishing. So we have this endless backbreaking task of passing judgment. And we live in constant judgment. And the inherent problem with our judgment is that it's a deeply flawed human judgment. In the words of Arthur Leff, who is the uh, professor of law at NYU, he says that if, 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 
there is no God. None of us can give ourselves a coronation ceremony and exalt ourselves and our moralities into the throne of God and then therefore dictate that our truth is the truth for all people and all cultures everywhere. We have no right to get on a plane and fly across the world and say to somebody, hey, your ethics are wrong, you ought to change them because we're North Americans and, and our culture's been around for 300 years, so you better listen up. We have no right because we're not dealing with right and wrong if there is no divine judgment. We're just dealing with preference. My preference against yours, our culture's preference against yours. And so this is the great irony of scoffing at divine judgment as all we are left with is the world of chronic judgment. In the words of Miroslav Volf, who is a Croatian theologian, he speaks very poignantly about judgment and he, about divine judgment and he says, he argues, that the only way out of the cycle of retribution and violence is to believe in divine judgment. Because it is the belief that in the end there will be divine judgment that frees us from needing to exact ours. And Wolf goes on to explain that it's very easy in cultures and in situations where we've not experienced our loved ones being slaughtered in the streets. We've not experienced the dev- de- devastation to be able, to, it's very easy for us to say, oh, well, you know, forgive. But forgiveness is abhorrent if you are the victim of injustice. If you are the victim of injustice, you want judgment, you want retribution. And Wolf says it is only in cultures of generation after generation after generation of violence and injustice that the belief in divine retribution liberates the soul from the need to exact ours. So Jesus is saying, he's bringing the gospel of good news. That's what his mission has been from the beginning. So is judgment good news? Well, it sounds like it would be very bad news, but I want you to consider that judgment is good news if you're the victim. Judgment is good news if judgment means deliverance. Judgment is good news if you are the victim of abuse or hurt or pain or sorrow or brokenness. Judgment is very good news because judgment day is deliverance day. But lest you think that Christianity is, well, the good people get mercy and the bad people get judgment. There are no good people. We all need the mercy of God. So if you're visiting here this morning and you're exploring Christian faith, Christian faith is not be good and God will accept you, be bad and God will judge you. I'm sorry, that's not Christianity. That's many other world religions. But Christianity is there are no people who before the goodness and the wonder and the love and the glory and the, and the uh, generosity of God, none of us are good by comparison. And so it's not the good people that get the grace. It's those who are willing to receive the king. Those who are willing to receive the grace. And so judgment is also good news if you're guilty. And you have an advocate who can make sure that you don't pay the penalty for your guilt. And all of us are not just victims of hurt and pain in the world. We're wielders of it. I have contributed to the hurt and the pain in the world. You have contributed to the hurt and the pain in the world. There's not a person in here, whether you're a Christian or an agnostic, there's not a person in here who would stand in a line that said, (laughs) perfectly loving, hasn't contributed to hurt and pain in the world. No one who owns a mirror would ever stand in that line because we have all contributed to the hurt and the pain and the sorrow 
in the world. We all have regrets. We are all, in some way, complicit. In the words of G.K. G.K. Chesterton, who was once asked by a publication, Chesterton was asked, what's the problem with the world today? And they were expecting this big self-righteous response that they were going to put in the publication. And Chesterton replied, I am. Right? He said, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. No, he didn't say that. Somebody else said that. But it was the same sentiment. We're all complicit. And so judgment is good news if we're the victim of the brokenness of this world, which all of us are. But it's also good news for all of us who are guilty but who have an advocate in Jesus Christ. You see, and because God doesn't wink at sin, none of you would want somebody who was convicted of an abhorrent, abhorrent crime. Because again, I said, we live in a culture of judgment. There's people that, that, we, uh, that we want to cancel, that should be canceled because they've done terrible, horrific things. And we're like, how can we remove this person's platform of influence? That's how our culture operates. We, we want it. And we don't want... You know, a year later from them to be like, hey, I'm back. And nobody's like, no, we want you to be canceled forever. We don't want a resurgence of this. So there's even human versions of trying to create this utopia where we could do away with, 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 with evil and sorrow. But God doesn't wink at sin. So his only way for dealing with the brokenness and the sin of humanity, this is the purpose of the cross, is that he absorbs it. Jesus takes it. So the king's got to be received and not rejected. This is why the symbol of our faith is a cross and not a ladder because we're not working our way up to be accepted by God, but he comes all the way down and we receive the goodness of his grace for us. And by coming and speaking about this judgment that the modern mind gets frustrated with, Jesus also says something quite provocative because what he's saying is, apart from me, life is already bad news. Is life a comedy or a tragedy in a, liter- in a classic literary sense? In a classic literary sense, comedy doesn't mean ha-ha-ha jokes. Comedy means, comedy means something starts low and it ends high. It's a comedy. Tragedy means it starts high and it ends low. So if everybody's dead at the end of the play, just watch the tragedy. That's how you know. Is life... A comedy or a tragedy? My friends, Jesus is making a provocative statement by saying, apart from me, the one who has come to bring renewal, do you see this backdrop of healing and forgiveness and love and grace and hugging the outcasts and touching the lepers? Do you see all of this? Apart from me, if you don't receive me, it's a tragedy because we're all hurtling toward the boneyard. And the only way to not be depressed is to not think about it. But Christian faith enables us to stare very deeply into the realities and the sorrows and the brokenness of the world and not lose hope, but be pushed deeper into hope and not lose joy, but have a pervasive sense of joy. It gives us a resilience and a strength that is unlike any ideology that the culture has to offer us because we're not bracketing out the inevitable. And so Jesus speaks this way. And so contrary to the modern vernacular, where, where the modern uh, vernacular about God and hell is, well, God sending people to hell, or would a loving God send people to hell? When you read the Bible front to back, 
God is not sending. God is not damning. God is calling and inviting and interrupting and intercepting over and over and over relentlessly. Ah, but Paul, what about sovereignty? We thought you got your master's degree from a reformed seminary. Well, first of all, I did. But also, I would like to point out that John Calvin did not die for my sins. So I don't feel any compulsion to sign on to everything that dead theologians have said. I I am responsible for proclaiming the one who rose from the grave. So yes, God is sovereign. And how has God exacted his sovereignty? By pursuing and chasing and relentlessly calling Those two things are not mutually exclusive. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And the more we try and button those things up, the more we get into weird heretical teaching. We have to just sit in the tension and the glory and the mystery that is God's goodness. Sovereignty is not fatalism. And he has not wound the world up and just damned some people to hell. He is continually and endlessly chasing and calling. Let's move on to the second thing. The kingdom is massive and it's mixed. You get these images of the mustard seed and the leaven and it's massive, but it's mixed. The mustard seed has these small beginnings. It grows far beyond expectation. That's what happened in Rome. That's exactly what happened after Christ's resurrection. If you're exploring Christian faith today, you've got to ask yourself, why didn't Christianity just die in Rome? Because it certainly should have. I don't have time to unpack that this morning, but if you want to have a coffee, reach out to me this week and I'll tell you, we'll talk lots about why from a sociological, historical point of view, it should have been laughed out of Rome, but it wasn't. Tacitus uh, writes in book 15, I'll read an excerpt from you. Nero fastened the guilt of the afflicted of the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our politicians, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition. That's the resurrection has been checked for the moment, but it broke out again, not only in Judea, the source of this evil, but even in Rome. Christianity is exploding in the ancient world, not over thousands of years when the legend has time to grow and the ancient hippie becomes divine. No, overnight. And it happens overnight because we don't believe in a missing body. It happens overnight because hundreds of people saw the resurrected body. Hundreds. For a period of 40 days after the empty tomb, which all history records was empty, for 40 days, the resurrected Christ is appearing to people. If Jesus didn't raise from the grave, what are we doing? What am I talking about? Why are you here? Let's take Sunday mornings off and find something else to do with our time and just be kind and love our neighbor. But the point is that he did rise from the grave, which is why everything has extreme relevance, including the texts about judgment and renewal. And he's calling us into his renewal. Glorious implications for Sunday morning. Uh, and for Monday morning, the leaven that Jesus talks about, you know, it's 60 pounds of flour. It's like this glorious, you know, exaggeration that he wants it to be comical. He wants people to imagine the dough is busting through the door frames. The dough of this bread that this woman has created is like popping through the windowsills. 60 pounds of flour and dough in her little house. It's comical. This explosion that's unexpected that nobody would even imagine. It's, his kingdom is massive, but it's also mixed. Because Jesus calls it leaven. And you know, leaven in the Jewish culture wasn't a good thing. 
it was always talked about like a corrupt thing. That's why in Exodus, go back to the Exodus narrative, and they weren't supposed to eat it, and they had a feast of the unleavened bread, and Jesus calls his kingdom, it's like leaven. So it's this glorious and amazing thing that busts and explodes to Rome, but also it's mixed. You've got people naming the name of Christ that don't resemble Jesus. You've got people calling themselves Christians, but they don't resemble the love and the nature and the wisdom of Jesus. It's always been that way. It will always be that way. There will always be a documentary about some person who did some ridiculously stupid thing, leading a church, blew up their lives, hit, hit self-destruct, abused people, hurt people. There's always going to be problems in his kingdom. And somehow, it's shocking to me, He's not intimidated by this. You see, again, this is why the judgment is the good news, because it's infuriating. And if you're here this morning, and you're like, yeah, that's my hang-up with Christian faith. There's all the hypocrites and the abuse and the terrible things the church has done in the past. I couldn't agree with you more. It's disgusting. But I want you to know, my friend, that you're not going to find any of your disgust in Jesus. You're finding it in systems, you're finding it in churches, you're finding it in leaders, you're finding it in all kinds of deeply flawed and failed people, some of whom are calling themselves Christians, but they're leaven. And in the end, there's judgment. So that should be good news for you. You should, you should be warm to the idea of divine judgment, that nobody's getting away with anything. But at the same time, those of us who deserve the judgment by God's scandal of grace... In true repentance as we turn to him, we don't receive what it is that we deserve. The final thing as I close, the kingdom is invaluable. Absolutely invaluable. It's like a treasure that brings life-changing joy. He gives this metaphor of selling everything to obtain it. Whatever I got to sell, it's worth it. Verse 52, every teacher of the law who comes into the kingdom of the gospel, it's like going into the storehouse and bringing out treasures, old and new. That's why preachers always try to go back to the Old Testament to show the glory of of Christ in the old and in the new, the old covenant and the new. The meta-narrative of all scripture, the God of creation will renew his beloved creation. It's invaluable. You know, life united to Christ, indwelled by his spirit, empowered to face the trials that await us on Monday. It's worth letting go of whatever we're clenching to for meaning. Whatever we're orienting our life around as ultimate, but in reality is incapable of filling the God-sized hole in our souls, the treasure is worth it. There's no shiny thing you can buy. There's no degree on your wall. There's no success. There's no measure of health that any of us can have that's going to satisfy the insatiable craving of the God-sized hole in the human soul because we are created not for this world of decay and death but of life and love in God. And that is precisely what Christ is bringing. That is precisely what the resurrection means and that is the treasure that's worth it. There's nothing that compares, that compares to this kind of flourishing. Being freed from fears, being freed from anxieties that are being tethered to this short life Having hope that's like a stabilizing anchor. Joy that is pervasive. I was stuck on, uh, in traffic on Victoria the other day. And I was thinking about the sermon. I'm like, man, we're, we're, how do we live with a sense of peace in, in, a, in a time and a period in history where we're so uh, surrounded by rage and anger and anxiety all the time. And then I looked over, at, I was at the red light, I looked over at the Burger King. And there was a sign for the new Whopper, which is called the Angry Whopper. And there's like flames behind the Whopper. And I was like, even our fast food is outraged. We're just, 
Everything's angry. Even my burgers are angry. There's no comparison to the flourishing in the soul. To look out on Monday into the madness and not be sucked into the sorrows and the anxiety that everybody else is being sucked into. To live and flourish into the new humanity. To reflect God's love and wisdom as his image bearers. To conform to the image of Christ, knowing this world is not all that there is. And then living with profound meaning day to day precisely because of that. It's not an exercise in futility. All that we put our hand to do matters. As we are ministers of renewal, living into a congruence of what ultimately will come with Christ's return. The God of creation who will restore his beloved creation. And living life from that disposition in the heart and the mind, that is a treasure. So what do I have to liquidate? What do I have to stop worshiping? What do I have to dethrone and let go of so I can flourish and enjoy this treasure? Because in an amazing act of grace, in a total contradiction of what humanity deserves, Jesus is the man who bought the field. He's the one who gave everything he had. He's the one who gave his life for us, his treasure. May we live to the glory of the one who rescued it in grace and will restore us in grace. Let's pray.